Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Job chapter 11. We heard this morning Job's lament in chapters 9 and 10, and now his friend Zophar replies in chapter 11, titled this sermon, Unwelcome Advice from a Worthless Physician, as Zophar's words in chapter 11 will elicit a response in Job's next speech, where he says, You whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all, oh, that you would be silent, it would be your wisdom. So we'll read Job chapter 11. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered, and should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace, and when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves." Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men, he sees wickedness also, will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, so then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning. And you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape. And their hope, loss of life. I want you to imagine um, the heading in your Bible, and the title of this sermon are not there, and all you have is the words of Zophar. Imagine uh, Job 42, verse 7, where God says that Zophar has not spoken rightly of him, is not in your Bible, and all you have are these words uh, spoken to a man who appears to be suffering God's judgment. Where Zophar says, Job, you are babbling in your lament. Your irreverent words need to be rebuked. You don't understand that God is incomprehensible. He's beyond finding out. But if you search your heart and repent, 
Repent of your secret sin, then he will take away your shame. I should imagine you don't know how the story ends and that God rebukes Zophar. What would be your assessment of Zophar's speech? And Christopher Ash says one of the most frightening things about it is how close it is to the kinds of things that we often say to each other. Even Zophar's words in verse 6, where he basically tells Job to count his blessings because it could be worse, or to quiet down because God's ways are past finding out. We say these kinds of things too. And are very tempted to read Job's friends sympathetically and read Job critically because we're very much like them. And so this afternoon, as we consider Zophar and seek to see ourselves in him, I want to look at three things. Uh, first, at Zophar's attitude, then at his argument, and finally, his answer. His attitude, argument, and answer. I first notice the, the tone or attitude that we see in verses 1 through 6, where it tells us, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Shouldn't this multitude of words be answered? Should a man who is full of talk, like Job, be vindicated? Should we let him get the last word and let him win? He's saying, Job, stop talking. Your words are empty. This morning we heard how Job poured out his heart in chapters 9 and 10, longing for a mediator in God's heavenly court, longing for the Christ to come suffering uh, unbearable trials in his life and longing for one who would put himself or his hand both on God and on man and bring peace. But all Zophar has to say is shut your mouth. Stop talking. He is the least sympathetic of Job's comforters. Uh, Francis Anderson says there is not a breath of compassion In his speech, his cold disapproval shows how little he has heard Job's heart, and his censorious chiding shows how little he has sensed Job's hurt. Again, as with Bildad, his attitude misses the mark because he has failed to listen. And we see that failure to listen in the way that he misquotes Job in verse 4, claiming that Job has said his doctrine is flawless and his ways are perfect. But Job has not said that. Job has not claimed an infallible understanding of the ways of God. In fact, chapter 9, what we heard this morning, contains quite a statement of God's incomprehensibility, that his ways are indeed past finding out. Nor has he claimed sinless perfection, but has merely said, as God has also three times, that he is blameless. He has not said that he is perfectly clean, but that he has lived uprightly. Zophar has not listened. Derek Thomas says he has failed to observe one of the cardinal rules of pastoral counseling. He has failed to listen to the one who is hurting. And he may go on to say some things that are true, I think especially of verses 7 to 9. But even if there is truth in what he says, there is no sympathy. Job doesn't just need Zophar to talk at him about the character of God, but he needs him to to demonstrate it to him in love. 
One Christian counselor who ministers to trauma victims said, often uh, we think that we just need the right words. And yet people don't just need knowledge about God's character, but the actual demonstration of it in the flesh. They will know his truth, love, and mercy as we sit with them. Uh, They will know his, his grace and patience as those things are evidenced in us. They need to sit with the loving and truthful character of the Father in you. They don't just need to hear about it. They need to experience it in you in the flesh. People who are depressed don't just need statements about hope. They need you to hope for them when they cannot lift their head. But so far doesn't do that. Uh, There may be some truth in his sermon to Job, but there is no humanity in it. There may be true statements about God, yet it very much lacks the character of God. We see here a reminder that spiritual counsel, especially to those who are hurting, must be offered with compassion. It's somewhat ironic in in verse 6, Zophar basically Uh, speaks of the doctrine of God's compassion, exacting less of Job than he deserves. But then he goes on to articulate that doctrine in a way that offers no compassion. He does not take into account the situation of the sufferer. And in his cold rebuke, doesn't realize, as we said this morning, that Job's words in chapters 9 and 10 are not the utterance of considered reflection or the expression of deliberate views to be nicely weighed as if spoken in moments of calm repose, but must be judged from Job's situation. Christopher Ash says, Zophar treats the statements of Job like those that we find in, in 9 verse 22 and 9 verse 24 as if they are the calm and rational conclusion of a heretic's doctrinal statement rather than the agonized thoughts of a desperate man. That's what we heard this morning, the agonized thoughts of a desperate man. But Bildad treats them as words of an opponent to be rebuked to whom he says, in effect, in verse 6, Job, you deserve much worse. You're going bankrupt. You're losing your ten children horrifically. Your loss of servants and animals and possessions and reputation, your loss of health, your loss of the support of your own wife, all of that is God going easy on you. It would have been much worse, Job, if he had given you what you actually deserve. So stop complaining and count your blessings. Can you hear the cruelty of verse 6? How could it possibly get any worse? The only way that, that you could think that is if you are a friend who has not entered in to the suffering of this man which becomes even more clear in the way that he will go on to to speak in verses 7 to 11, which we won't go into yet. I just want to note one thing about what he's going to say. Notice he says in verse 5, Oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. He is longing for for God in verse 6 to reveal the secrets of his wisdom. And then in verses 7 to 9, he goes on to speak of the secrets of, of God's wisdom. He is presuming to speak for God. And we won't get into what he says just yet, but as we think about Zophar's attitude, note the, the danger 
of presumptuously claiming that our words are a message from God when in fact they're just our opinion. We have a lesson here about the need for humility, about not making dogmatic statements where we claim to speak for God and then getting angry because we are so sure that we're right. There is a special danger when a kind of theological certainty where we know that we're right fuels a self-righteousness where we convince ourselves that we are right to be angry so anyone who challenges what we believe is an outrage to what we know to be true. It causes us to do things like Zophar in verse 12 where he calls Job an empty-headed donkey. And says, in effect, Job, it is more likely for a donkey to give birth to a human than for an empty-headed person like you to produce a wise insight. He's saying, Job, you know nothing. And it's more likely pigs will fly. It's more likely a donkey will give birth to a human than something theologically correct will come out of your mouth. How sad when theological debate leads to cutting insults, when the same mouth that extols the incomprehensible greatness of God in verse 9 insults his image bearer in verse 12 and somehow fools itself into thinking that that insult is in the name of the God he's seeking to defend. You see how the application for us of Job chapter 11 goes beyond just our attitude in giving counsel to sufferers, but even our attitude in theological debate, where we are so sure of ourselves that we begin hurling insults and and calling names, mocking brothers and sisters in the family of God. May God save us from this kind of attitude. But as we come alongside those who are hurting, or as we come into contact with those with whom we disagree. May our attitude instead be more like the Christ, who, as we sang in our song before the sermon, does not break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick, does not cry aloud in the streets or lift up his voice, doesn't resort to name-calling and shaming, but sits with us. And instead of shaming us, bears our shame. And even when we are wrong, he does not chide us like Zophar, but is patient. Beloved, we are are seeing a, a portrait emerge of the true friend, the friend of sinners, as we behold in Zophar and these men what a friend and counselor is not. Whereas they were proud, Christ is meek. Whereas they were angry, Christ is gentle. Whereas they did not listen, Christ inclines his ear toward us and calls us to do the same as we walk alongside fellow sinners and sufferers, not with the the pointed finger or, or angry folded arms of Zophar, but rather with outstretched arms of compassion. Uh, Something that even though uh, Zophar pretends to know in verse 6 and goes on to extol in verses 7 and following, he actually knows very little of. Look at me next at Zophar's argument. It's a fairly simple argument. See it in verses 7 to 11. He says the deep things of God cannot be searched out, at least not by Job is the implication. Job cannot find out the limits of the Almighty, but they are higher than heaven and deeper than Sheol. As we sang this morning from Psalm 145, his greatness is unsearchable. 
Or as, as we think of those words in Isaiah 55, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Zophar is stating for us what we call the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility, which our Belgic confession echoes when it says we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God who is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. As Article 1 of our our confession lists the the perfections of God, among those is that he is incomprehensible. The church father, Athanasius, said, God transcends all being and human comprehension. Because he is the creator and we are the creature, we cannot know him exhaustively. Only God can fully comprehend God. He has revealed himself, and so we can know him, but we cannot know him exhaustively. That's what Zophar is saying. The, the depths of God's wisdom and ways are longer than the earth and broader than the sea. It's a true statement. It's a good statement. It's a statement that our own confession echoes, but here it is a misapplied statement. For as true as it is that God is incomprehensible, Job has already confessed that in chapter 9. When he said, God does great things past finding out. We cannot perceive him. We cannot say to him, what are you doing? Job knows that God transcends all human comprehension. The one who needs to be reminded of this is actually Zophar, who with his friends has virtually denied the mystery of God's ways by insisting that God is punishing Job for sin. Zophar believes he knows what God is doing. Meredith Klein said he would have made better use of this doctrine of God's incomprehensibility if he had humbly recognized the limitations of his own knowledge of God's providence and not presumed to perfectly understand Job's suffering. If it's true, as Isaiah 55 says, that God's ways are higher than ours, then it follows that there may be reasons for suffering other than those we perceive. Zophar was weaponizing the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility against Job instead of applying it to himself and realizing that God might be doing something other than punishing Job for sin. That maybe Job's suffering was part of of God's unfolding plan of redemption where God was was revealing in, in type and shadow in this blameless servant what he would do in his son in silencing the accuser and crushing the serpent to the faithful suffering of a righteous man. God's ways are indeed higher than ours. Yes, so high that what looked like the unmistakable judgment of God in the trial of Job was in fact the greatest demonstration of the mercy of God. Zophar in his argument fails to apply it to himself. And so unlike Job, who who throughout the book, as we saw this morning, seems to grow in his understanding of the mystery of God's ways, even of the possibility of a mediator, Zophar digs his heels in and denies the incomprehensible gospel mystery that is being revealed in Job's suffering. God's greatness is indeed unsearchable. 
And so the fact, verse 10, that Job seems to be imprisoned by divine judgment does not mean he's a deceitful and wicked man, as Zophar concludes in verse 11. But he is a righteous man in whom God is showing how the righteous man par excellence will suffer, though not for his sins, so that arrogant, insensitive, name-calling friends like Zophar and like you and I could be saved. Zophar has misread and misunderstood God's incomprehensibility. He is right in the beautiful statements he makes, but wrong in how he applies them. And so his answer that he'll give in verses 13 to 20, his his answer or the, the application to Job's situation, we shouldn't be surprised, is going to miss the mark also. So in that last section, we see his answer, his, his uh, solution or application, the prescription of this worthless physician is ultimately the same as his friends. We could summarize it in a single word, repent. He assumes, verse 6 and verse 11, that Job is a wicked man who is harboring secret sin. And so his solution sounds a lot like Bildad's and, and a lot like Eliphaz's. Remember, Eliphaz had suggested that Job was a a slight sinner. Bildad had uh, removed all all tact and asserted that Job is a serious sinner. Now, Zophar suggests that uh, Job is a secret sinner. And so his solution is verse 13, prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, that is toward God. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away from you and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Zophar provides a sort of four-step repentance. First thing Job must do is settle his heart. He must not only go through the motions of repentance, but he must have a contrite heart. And then he must uh, stretch out his hands toward God, which is simply speaking of of prayer. Having repented of any sin in his heart, Job is to pray for God's forgiveness. And then after that, step three, he is to stop sinning. Now put iniquity far away from you, Zophar says. And then step number four, uh, let not wickedness dwell in your tents. He's saying deal justly with your neighbors and with your servants and with your household. Zophar is perhaps subtly suggesting here that Job has not done this, but that his kingdom has been built on unjust dealings. And so he is calling on Job to repent in his heart, confess with his mouth, turn away from sin, and love his neighbor. And should he follow those four steps, he will then receive the blessings that are listed in verses 15 to 19, where Zophar says, then you will be able to lift up your face without blemish, Uh, That is to say, you will no longer be filled with shame. Uh, Job has said in chapter 10 that he could not lift up his head but was filled with disgrace. Now Zophar says, God will take away your shame. He will allow you to lift up your head. And the mention of the spots or blemishes on his face that will no longer be there may even be a, a promise of his boils being removed. God will give you health and remove your disgrace in the eyes of men. Then verse 16, uh, you will forget your misery. He says it will be like water under the bridge. 
Zophar here seems to, to minimize Job's suffering by saying it will be like water under the bridge. But what he, what he is trying to say is it will be no more. It will be behind you. Verse 17, your, your life will be brighter than the noonday. The darkness will be gone. You'll be safe and secure. Verse 18, you will take your rest in safety. You will have no more sleepless nights, no more nightmares, but you will lie down and no one will make you afraid and many will court your favor. And as with uh, Bildad two weeks ago, there's some irony here as Zophar will actually be among those in chapter 42 who are courting Job's favor. But both of them misunderstood that this change and this exaltation of Job will not come about through four easy steps of repentance, but rather through God exalting his servant at the end. There is no secret sin for Job to repent of. He is not among the wicked of verse 20, as Zophar implies. But as one commentator says, Zophar makes the classic mistake of applying the categories of guilt and pardon to every human problem. Suffering is not always occasioned by sin. And yet all the time we give spiritual counsel that assumes this. That if you're stuck in a rut, you're depressed, you're anxious, it must be because you don't have enough faith. Because you're not reading your Bible enough, you're not praying enough. If your spouse is a tyrant or if your your spouse is seeking satisfaction elsewhere, it's probably because you're not submitting enough or not fulfilling their needs enough. Rather than to sympathize with the one who suffers or, or help them, we add to the burden of their suffering by going on a sin hunt and assuming that their greatest need is repentance. That is precisely what Zophar is doing, what we so often do as well. Sometimes people suffer not because of their own sin. Sometimes people suffer because of the sins of someone else, or they suffer for reasons unknown to us, unknown to them, and known only to God. And they're better served by us sitting with them, loving them, and caring for them than going on a sin hunt and adding to their burden. Christopher Rash is right about how frighteningly close Zophar's counsel is to the things we so often say in the church. Count your blessings. It could be worse, verse 6. At least you can still have more children. Verse 2, the ways that we silence lament. Verse 13, the, the way that we assume all suffering is because of personal sin. Verses 7 to 9, the ways we appeal to God's sovereignty or incomprehensibility and think that that's sufficient. Verses 15 to 19, the ways that we subtly imply that faithful living obligates God to bless us. That if you make wise decisions, God is obligated to bless you, and that blessing is going to come through physical and and immediate means. The ways we forget that suffering is a mark of the believer, and as Luther said, a mark of the church because it is the pattern of our Savior, and so we shouldn't be surprised by it. But for some reason, we are. As the spirit of Zophar continues to live on in the church today and to live on in us. Yes, there will be times when someone's suffering is closely connected to their sin. 
Yes, there will be times when we need to call them to repentance in a similar way to what we read in verses 15 to 19. Yes, there will be times when, when uh, someone who is suffering needs to be reminded that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are, are higher than our thoughts and they need to be captivated by a vision of the greatness and glory of God. But there will be other times when we need to sit with them, pray with them, lament with them, and point them to Christ. The righteous one who suffered not because of his sin, but because of God's glorious gospel purposes, which are higher than heaven and deeper than Sheol, their measure longer than the earth and their breadth broader than the sea. We point them to the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God in Christ. We point them to the mystery of salvation and say with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. And say, Sister, brother, I don't know why God is allowing this to happen to you. But I know that he sent his son into the world and has proven that he loves you. I know that Christ's pattern of of suffering first and glory later is what we also are called to as we follow him. And I know that there is a crown at the other side of the cross. That maybe not in this life, but certainly in the life to come, as we heard earlier from Psalm 73. Where soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song. And we say to them, I will sit with you until then. I would that Zophar's counsel had been more like that. I would that ours would be more like that, like that of Christ, as we sang earlier from Isaiah 42, who does not break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick. Let's pray. Father, our words are so often insufficient as we seek to encourage those we love, sometimes because of our failure to listen, sometimes because we're more intent on telling them about your character as opposed to modeling it for them, sometimes because we have not entered into their suffering and so we minimize it, saying one day it'll be like water under the bridge. You're saying it could be worse. Sometimes we add to the suffering of others by making them think that it's occasioned by their sin. And sometimes because we get so frustrated that like Zophar, we end up calling them names and insulting them. Lord, help us. As you have have exposed the inadequacy of our words and our counsel. We pray that you would help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We pray that you would help us to be like Christ, to not break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick, but to be meek and be gentle. We pray that you would help us to point our suffering brothers and sisters to the gentle and lowly Savior who loves them. And Lord, we pray that you would do that even now as we sing together in Jesus' name.